My lords, ladies and gentlemen, tonight I have the exceptional honour of calling upon His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh to give the 10th British Commonwealth Lecture. The interest of Prince Philip in aviation is well known not only in this country but throughout the Commonwealth and he's also shown a very active interest in the aircraft industry. Those of us who have had the pleasure of showing him some of our work know the force of his keen observations. His visits have certainly been very inspiring to us. Members of the society will know that we have been greatly favoured by the royal family. Her Majesty the Queen is our patron, succeeding our illustrious father in that office. He, some of us may remember, took the chair at the Wilbur Wright Memorial Lecture in 1920. Tonight we are to hear the impressions and views of His Royal Highness on civil aviation. And I will now call upon him to give his lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a, I've called this aviation in the, and the development of remote areas. And it's a very great honor indeed uh, to find myself addressing the Royal Aeronautical Society. If, as I'm often told, a little knowledge, or more accurately, a little learning, is a dangerous thing, uh, then you are in for a very dangerous lecture. Uh, for much as I would like to say that I know nothing about aviation, it wouldn't be altogether true. But my knowledge uh, is of the picked-up rather than the learned variety. Uh, during the war, I was either at the receiving end of enemy aviation or under a friendly and comforting umbrella, which I count as passive experience. I started flying as a passenger in about 1935, and in common with many others, I've put up with all the frustrations and delays of airline travel, uh, particularly getting to and from the airfield. And this I put down to semi-active experience. And the active part of my experience began two short years ago when I started to learn to fly. Uh, from this you will gather that any views I express this evening uh, must be treated with caution, if, if nothing else. Now, for, for the purposes of this address, I would like to divide aviation into, into three broad divisions. First, service aviation, and I don't think I need to define it any more closely than that. Secondly, scheduled airline operation, which can include some of the long-distance passenger charter work. And in the third division, the rest, which is in fact largely made up of aviation in the remote areas of the great countries of the world. I don't propose to make any further reference to service aviation or civil airline operation or to the development of aircraft for their use because a great many people, far more qualified than I am, uh, have covered those subjects in very great detail. In any case, it's my contention that there is much more to aviation than fighters, bombers and airliners. And a comparison of figures may give a clearer picture. 
Those are very rough figures. Don't uh, put, set too much reliance on any of the figures this evening, but it, the idea is to, is to give you some idea of the numbers involved. Um, the, this is the third division under others, and those are the aircraft which I particularly want to talk about this evening, and if you do a rapid addition, you'll find it comes to about five and a half thousand. Not very long ago, the aircraft used in the three divisions were roughly comparable in cost and performance, and some aircraft, notably the Dakota, served in all three. In recent years, however, invention and development have tended to open up an ever-widening gap between the third division and the other two. To the Air Force and airline operators, higher, faster, bigger and better may be an excellent motto, but it means nothing to the man who wants to do top dressing or crop dusting from the air. And it means that in a few years' time, there will be little use for the second-hand high-performance aircraft except in the particular role for which they were designed. It is therefore perhaps a good moment to take stock of the position in this third division of aviation and to see what is going on and what is likely to happen in the future. Now, during the recent tour of Australia and New Zealand and then later in, in Canada, I had a wonderful opportunity to hear about and sometimes to see the enormous variety of uses other than passenger carrying, to which aircraft have been put in these countries. It's not perhaps surprising that they have found so many uses for aircraft, considering the conditions. Australia and Canada are enormous countries by any standard, and although New Zealand is not much bigger than the British Islands, the population is about two and a half million compared to roughly 50 million in these islands. The distances involved alone make aircraft the obvious choice for general transport. In, in this country, all forms of aviation and transport are bedeviled by chancy weather, to say the least of it, while Australia, New Zealand and Canada are blessed with relatively good flying weather for most of the year. In fact, services in Australia work to a 98% regularity. On top of that, the, the attitude to flying in those countries is different. It is part of their life, and not in the least restricted to the relatively few people who go abroad regularly, as it is to a large extent in this country. Aircraft and the men who fly them occupy quite a special place in the, in the minds and affections of the people who live in the remote districts. For instance, the pilots of the aircraft engaged in the outback services in the Northern Territory of Australia are doing by air, with all the added difficulties, what the carriers and bus drivers are doing in the rural areas of this country. And in case the pilots uh, in this country might take umbrage of that description, I saw, I caught sight of an article in Flight describing the beaver service in Nyasaland which said, amongst other things, that there is a genuine similarity between the work of the beaver and the country bus. I'm covered on that. <laughs> the pilots are required to service their aircraft, repair minor defects, refuel, collect fares, issue invoices for passengers and freight, and do loading and unloading. In addition, they're expected to run to a strict schedule, navigate over poorly mapped areas, which they must know well, 
land and take off from a great variety of bush airfields under varying weather conditions. In fact, the pilots become well known to all the residents and become part of the life of the territory and the whole thing is accepted as being perfectly normal. And many things are quite reasonably done by aircraft out there which would be the height of extravagance or folly in this country. In many cases, of course, aircraft are used not because it is easier, quicker, or cheaper, but simply because there is no other way at all. Distances, weather, and the absence of other facilities, therefore, make aviation a vital and integral part of the civilization of those countries, and no longer an interesting novelty or a convenience for the relatively few. My first-hand knowledge of Africa and the Indian continent is rather more limited, but I imagine that much the same applies there, or will do before very long, especially if the right kind of aircraft are forthcoming. Now, for the moment, I would like to get down to cases, because it's only by quoting cases that I can try and show you the extraordinary range and importance of aviation in the Commonwealth. Now, take agriculture first. Aircraft are being used for crop dusting, which is really a form of pest control, for seeding, top dressing, and for the survey of land and in forestry. That is, of course, broadly speaking, because it would be almost as difficult uh, to describe all the uses of aircraft in agriculture as to enumerate all the uses of a farm tractor. Now, top dressing is a speciality of New Zealand, and the object of the exercise is to drop fertilizer onto otherwise inaccessible pasture land to improve the grass to feed sheep. And it is important to remember that this is not an alternative way of doing it, it is the only way. Top dressing is done by air or not at all. And I don't think that there is any doubt about its usefulness. And now I'll have some more figures here. The, on a 900-acre block in the Auckland district, two seasons of top dressing with four to 600 weight of phosphate and potash per acre, the capacity of the block has been increased from 1,200 to 2,300 ewes, and it's hoped to increase it to 3,000 in the next two years. Throughout New Zealand, there were 12 aircraft employed in top dressing in 1939, and that figure has now risen to 162. In 1953, they distributed, they distributed 140,000 tons of fertilizer over a million and a half acres. And some people estimate that aerial top dressing is capable of increasing meat production in New Zealand 50% in 10 years. And the ultimate target is to treat 10 million acres of hill country. Now, to give some idea of the cost of this work, it's estimated that counting fertilizer, transport, dropping, interest on capital, etc., it works out at between 30 and 34 shillings per acre, or some three pounds per ton dropped. And the latest development is a product consisting of a hormone and a superphosphate for the dual purpose of weed killing and fertilizing. Now, apart from top dressing, Aircraft are used to spread trace elements, and this is done commercially in New Zealand for between sixpence and a shilling per acre, for sowing seeds, dropping fencing and other supplies such as fodder and poison bait, and frost protection of valuable crops. In America, it's estimated 
that aircraft used for agricultural purposes, and there are 7,000 of them compared to 65 in Western Europe, spend 55% of their total flying time in pest and disease control, 35% in seeding and fertilizing, and 10% in photographic surveys for erosion, pest infestation, and for planning irrigation work. So far as aircraft for agriculture are concerned, particularly in spraying for pest and weed control, they have one important advantage in that they avoid any mechanical injury to the crop, which would be unavoidable with ground machinery. But whatever purpose aircraft are used for, there is one fundamental rule. The aircraft must be employed all the year round to make it worthwhile. And the whole difficulty of operating aircraft for agriculture lies in finding a variety of uses which will achieve this ideal. Now, there are many sides to pest control from the air, but they're mostly alternatives to ground methods. In, Af in Africa, however, aircraft are used for locust control, and in this case there is no alternative which is anything like so effective. For every pound spent on aerial spraying of locusts, crops up to the value of 110 pounds can be saved. In 1954, a battle was fought in East Africa by 10 light aircraft operating from a 600-mile line of bases in Kenya and Tanganyika against an invasion of some 50 swarms with a total area of about 500 square miles and containing something like 50,000 million locusts weighing in all about 100,000 tons. At this particular occasion, the locusts won. Although many large swarms were attacked in flight, and several were completely destroyed. During the battle, it was found that 300,000 locusts can be killed by one gallon of poison sprayed from aircraft at a cost of six pounds per million locusts killed. Also in Africa, aircraft are used against what is probably the greatest obstacle to the development of that co uh, continent. In Tanganyika alone, 75% of the total land is unsuited for settlement because of the tsetse fly. They could be wiped out from the air, but at the moment it takes three applications, and that is still rather expensive. Almost every country in the Commonwealth and Empire can provide examples of the use of aircraft in pest and disease control. Forests are surveyed to find infected areas, and in Canada, budworm in forests have been attacked with DDT with great effect. The most important and effective way of controlling pests and diseases, if good husbandry and good sanitation prove inadequate, is by the use of poisonous chemicals. And the immense development of potent new chemicals in recent years has meant that only from 1 to 25 gallons of spray per acre are required, while 100 to 3,500 gallons would have been necessary a few years ago. In fact, the low dosages at which the new chemicals are effective have been directly responsible for the increased use of aircraft for the control of pests and diseases in the last 12 years. The essential quality of aircraft which suits them for this work is their independence from the nature of the countryside, which enables them to reach standing crops, deserts for locusts, treetops for forest pests, 
and swamps breeding mosquitoes that would be inaccessible to ground machines and to treat infested areas with a speed quite impossible by any other means. Another method of dealing with pests is by biological control and this means spreading harmless insects which will live on the pests and reduce their numbers. This sort of thing can be done most efficiently by air. In fact, it can also be done unintentionally with harmful results. For instance, before starting the South Africa-Australia air service, it was discovered that there were 52 varieties of pests which existed in South Africa, but not in Western Australia, which were liable to be transported inside or outside the aircraft on that route. Now, Considering the immense size of Canada, Australia and Africa and the large uh, proportion of unexplored country, it's not surprising that aircraft are used extensively in the survey of vast areas of unknown country. These surveys are made for a number of reasons apart from ordinary map making. In Africa, 30,000 square miles were mapped for the purpose of choosing the best route for a projected railway line. 16,000 square miles were mapped in the Gold Coast for a hydroelectric scheme and in northern Rhodesia, 11,000 square miles have been looked at for a possible extension of the Copper Belt. To give some idea, that is the square mileage of the United Kingdom at the top. In India, 180,000 square miles have been photographed for the survey of India. In Pakistan, under the Colombo Plan, 300,000 square miles are to be photographed for geological and irrigation surveys. Probably the most important aerial surveying is done for geological reasons. Aerial prospecting is indispensable in Canada and Australia and many interesting techniques have been developed. Geological interpretations of photographs, measurements of the Earth's magnetic field, Measurements of electromagnetism and measurements of radioactivity all play their part in laying bare the hidden resources of those great countries. Allied to geological surveys are the aerial soil surveys over country otherwise inaccessible or where the use of land changes rapidly. Over or underdeveloped land and soil erosion are quickly detected in photographs and volumes of timber per acre can be estimated with fair accuracy. Canada has led in the development of the technique of assessing the composition, wealth and best logging plan for our vast forest using stereo examination of photographs combined with groundwork. And the great attraction of aerial surveying, for whatever purpose, is the speed at which it can be done and hence the tremendous amount of time saved. For instance, before building the hydroelectric plant at Kittimat in Western Australia, uh, Western Canada, it was necessary to find the best route for a 50-mile power line across mountains 5,000 feet high. By any other method, the survey would have taken three years. But using helicopters, the work was completed in 30 hours flying. Or again, the survey of the Fraser River Canyon in British Columbia which took five years on foot, was completed in one season from the air. As early as 1923, 
aerial survey was used in Canada to sketch waterways, lakes, rivers, and areas of burn and merchantable timber. And the cost was one half cent per acre against two and a half cents for ground reconnaissance. And it was done at the rate of 36 square miles per hour. Now, I think it can be generally assumed that aircraft are not employed on jobs which can be done more cheaply by other means. In the moving of freight, however, a whole host of complicated problems make the issue rather more difficult. I don't propose to deal with express air freight because from the aircraft point of view it is not so very different from passenger carrying. But for many years there has been a tendency, I think, in this country to think of air freighting as rather expensive and unnecessary. And this is not altogether surprising considering the difficulties of weather, short distances, and in the early days the relative lack of funds available to the aviation industry. There are now, I'm glad to say, many welcome signs of growing interest in the rapidly expanding market for air freight. Development was very different in Canada, for example, where as early as 1937, Canadian aircraft carried 24 million pounds of freight, compared with 9.5 million pounds lifted by United States carriers in 1939. Air freight opened the Canadian North in the 20s and 30s, and every further development in that area depends entirely on aviation. Take, for instance, the Eldorado uranium mine at Port Radium on the Great Bear Lake, less than 30 miles south of the Arctic Circle. In the first place, it was discovered by Gilbert Labine in 1930 from the air in an aircraft flown by C.H. Punch Dickens, a famous name among the bush pilots of Canada. The mine at Port Radium is entirely supplied by air from Edmonton, 1,200 miles away, except for particularly large or heavy equipment. The Eldorado Company also look after another establishment <coughs> at Beaver Lodge, 350 miles from Edmonton. The company operates one Dakota and one Curtis Commando, which between them lift on the average 3,000 passengers and about 3,000 tons of freight every year. A total of roughly two and a half million ton miles at a cost of 22 and a half cents per ton mile. The only other transport system is by water. And although this is considerably cheaper, the, as you can see by the comparison, it costs uh, $80 for every ton taken to Port Radium compared to 225 by hour. Navigation to Port Radium is only open for one month and to Beaver Lodge for four months in the year. Therefore, allowance must be made for the cost involved in carrying large infantries of waterborne freight and equipment. In fact, the water route is only used to bring out the product from the, of the mine. And the figure of 22.5 cents per ton mile becomes rather more interesting when it's compared to the cost of road transport over comparable distances in northern Canada, which is, at a rough estimate, about 15 cents per ton mile although the average for the whole of Canada is only five and a half cents per ton mile. Two of the reasons why this company can operate at such a relatively low cost are that both aircraft are picked up cheap as uh, war disposal and because of the large backhaul of passengers and concentrates which makes for the high load factor of 90%. The important point here is that these establishments 
thanks to aircraft, are in no way cut off from the outside world. Since fresh food and vegetables, newspapers and books can be flown in all the year round, the community, which includes several families, lives a normal, full life. Passing now from Canada to Australia, where an experiment has been running some six years on the flying of beef from a cattle station to the coastal port. Now, these cattle stations can be up to five million acres in extent and 500 miles from the nearest railhead or harbour. The experiment was started by Air Beef Limited, who established an experimental abattoir at Glenroy, some 180 miles inland from Wyndham in the northwest corner of Western Australia, with a capacity uh, for dealing with 60 head of cattle per day, or 300 a week. During the six years, an average of 4,000 head of cattle per annum have been killed, and the result has been to upgrade the meat from 23% export quality to 65% export quality, and total frozen carcass weight has gone up 13%. Before the introduction of air beef, only about 7% of the cattle raised ever reached the meatwork. Although the value of the meat has only gone up 34 shillings a head, the increased production of meat has increased revenue by over 200%. And the number of cattle marketed from that station has doubled, and the station has been enormously improved by the increased income and by using the aircraft to transport to the station all the equipment required for the development. The um, Air Beef Limited operate one uh, Bristol freighter. The possibilities for Australia are immense, and it's been estimated that uh, by using inland abattoirs and air freighting, beef production in Australia could be doubled in 10 years. And when you think that um, some of these herds of cattle before that had to walk from the distances shown there. You can imagine why it is they ride in rather dim condition at the other end. <laughs> there is one other use for air freight which I, which I would like to mention. And it's in connection with the giant construction jobs in remote districts. Earlier this year, a 350-mile railway from the St. Lawrence uh, to Knob Lake on the border of Quebec and Labrador was completed to carry iron ore. This railway is capable of carrying trains weighing up to 10,000 tons. And the railway was built principally by air. Using six landing strips, men, equipment and food were flown to work on various sections of the line. And I've already mentioned that helicopters were used to survey the route uh, for the power line from Kamano to Kitimat. I think it's also worth mentioning here that the line was also built with the use of helicopters which carried every man and piece of equipment to remote spots up to 5,000 feet above sea level. Now I've tried to describe to you the major fields of employment for aircraft other than fighting or passenger carrying. But there are one or two fields which don't fall into any category but which I think ought to be mentioned. There's the flying doctor service in Australia which has made such an enormous difference to life in the outback. I'm not going to describe the organization except to point out that the pilot has a lot of problems which don't normally apply. The mere fact that weather or airfield conditions are such that normal flying would cease 
does not matter very much when a life is at stake. And the pilot often has to make a decision knowing that if anything happened to the aircraft, it would not be covered by the insurance. Emergencies are much more likely to occur after floods or storms, just when airstrips are at their worst. Night flying is not possible at the moment, so there is the added hazard of not getting back in time and having to make a forced landing in the desert. The flying doctor service is a wonderful achievement, but flying the doctor is no piece of cake. In the exploration for and production of oil, Shell have five aircraft in British Borneo, which are used to carry staff between oil fields, camps, and the nearest major airport, at the rate of about a thousand a month. Journeys which would take 14 to 20 hours on the ground are done in 50 minutes by amphibian. But quite apart from the practical advantages, the moral effect on staff of the ability to extricate casualties from difficult places and get them quickly to hospital has been one of the most welcome results of using aircraft. For instance, a suspected typhoid case was in the main base hospital within five hours of the emergency message being received. The outstation was 200 miles away and the surface journey would have taken 24 to 36 hours. Now, much as I would uh, like to say something about the private owner and flying for fun, I'm afraid that the subject is altogether too big and complicated uh, to be dealt with here. And in spite of the uh, claims that I've made uh, for the contribution of aircraft to the progress of civilization, I must admit that there are other uses not quite so utopian. At uh, Yellowknife in Canada this year, a man succeeded in pinching two gold bars which he put in his kit bag. He then hired an aircraft and flew off to Edmonton and vanished. And the story goes that the pilot helped him to lift, helped him to lift his bags into the aircraft. When he felt the weight, he supposed to said, what have you got in there, a couple of gold bricks? <laughs> <laughs> now, I deliberately avoided... Uh, the subject of helicopters in any great detail, simply because the relative expense at the moment puts them out of the reach of most people. However, now that they've caught the imagination of the public and official mind, I have no doubt that their development will not lag uh, through lack of interest or funds. And neither does it need a particularly vivid imagination uh, to think of the uses for helicopters once they can be produced reasonably cheaply. I also do not wish to become involved in an argument about the use of helicopters, but judging by present trends, it looks as if this country particularly could benefit from their characteristics. Fixed-wing aircraft are ideal for agriculture, pest control and survey, so long as the geographical scale of countryside is large. When it comes to dealing with small detailed work, which is the rule in this country, then the helicopter is the only really useful type of aircraft for that purpose. In fact, the greatest part of air spraying in this country is done by helicopters, and some thousands of acres of potatoes are sprayed by helicopters each year. Well, now, <clears throat> that really concludes my rather sketchy summary of what aircraft are used for in the Commonwealth and Empire. But I think there are several conclusions to be drawn. The first and most important is that apart from the Bristol freighter and the Beaver, and later the Otter, not one single aircraft used in any of the fields I have mentioned was actually designed for the job. 
Every sort and kind of aircraft are used from Moss to Dakotas, and they are all old and were all designed for something else. In fact, it's rather like using a double-decker bus as a milk float or a Bentley as a farm tractor. It is also perhaps interesting to note that both the freighter and the beaver were private ventures, the latter being designed and built in Canada. I may be wrong, but as far as I know, the only aircraft on the stocks which falls into the category I'm discussing is the Twin Pioneer, known to some as the Double Scot. <coughs> this started and is still substantially uh, a private venture. And it, it was designed and is being built by a company that has only produced one type of aircraft previous to this effort. I think it's also worth remembering that when the Beaver was first mooted, the makers went to considerable trouble to find out exactly what the bush pilots of Canada really wanted, and throughout its development their opinions, experience and criticisms were sought and used. The result is an aircraft which they like and use. 113 Beavers and 51 Otters are in use in Canada already. And not unnaturally, this aircraft is in demand outside Canada also. Several attempts have been made to produce a DC-3 replacement, notably the Herald in this country. But it is not an easy thing to do because the DC-3 will only be replaced by an aircraft which is better in all respects and, most important, considerably cheaper to operate. The secret of success seems to be the very closest cooperation between the makers and the operators. That cooperation exists in the development of airliners, and it is not always present in the development of aircraft for remote districts. The Civil Aviation Journal of New Zealand introduced an article with these words. While it is not usually the policy of the Civil Aviation Journal to reprint articles from other publications, this article is so apposite to a major problem of concern to operators in New Zealand that we have on this occasion departed from normal policy. Acknowledgement is made to the publishers of Aviation Age for permission to reproduce this article. The journal then prints an article called We Want a Flying Tractor. Well, I won't weary you with the details, but the author wants an aircraft with a one-ton capacity, a biplane, low wing loading, load and engine ahead of the pilot, no flaps or slots, simple, low speed and price. And strange enough, an aircraft obviously based on these requirements has been built in America and is expected to cost between five and six thousand pounds. And trials already indicate that using this specially designed aircraft, the operating cost of chemical application is roughly half that of the cost of the best existing aircraft converted for the purpose. The other interesting fact is that a third, the, the third of, the, of, the, of this type of aircraft uh, to be built will probably be sold to New Zealand. I've also heard that more than one British aircraft company is giving careful attention to the needs of New Zealand's top dressers and aerial agriculturalists. From Australia, I'd like to read an extract from a letter from the operations supervisor of Canellan Airways at Alice Springs, who, among other things, run the flying doctor service there. The difficulty which is faced by bush airline operators is the lack of, of a suitable type of aircraft. At the moment, there is no aircraft being manufactured, nor, as far as is known, is one even contemplated. Tough conditions are experienced, and the aircraft must be designed for the job. Specifications for such an aircraft, the Bolger, 
were published in the Australian Aircraft Magazine in 1950 and were sent all over the world to manufacturers. The great service would be done to bush operators, not only here but in other undeveloped parts of the world, if this need could be presented to the aircraft manufacturers. Then it is possible that such a suitable aircraft would be produced. And from Canada, <coughs> El Dorado Aviation had this to say. We are now using aircraft which are approaching obsolescence. We must shortly consider replacement. At the present time, there is no new aircraft available which meets our requirements. This is a problem which is common to all operators in Canada serving remote areas. Possibly the best commentary on the failure of the aircraft industry to meet this particular demand is the fact that the DC-3 aircraft now command a higher price on the market than they did in 1946. So far as the uh, British uh, aircraft industry is concerned, out of 687 aircraft of 64 different types em employed on bush operations in Canada in 1953, 46 were built in this country and only four were built after the war. Now, quite obviously, this is only one side of the picture, uh, and no one would deny that the makers have their troubles and difficulties too. After all, even pilots and operators are not uh, well known for being able to state and stick to their requirements. Uh, although they can be relied upon to uh, say with considerable emphasis what they do not want. But the fact remains that aircraft are needed for these operations, that aircraft will be used for these operations, and that somebody has got to make them. There is no, there can be no doubt that aviation is an essential element in the development of the Commonwealth and Empire. Hence it follows that aircraft must be designed for the jobs for which they are required, or the aircraft must be highly versatile. That whatever the job, the aircraft must be simple, robust, and easy to maintain that speed is a secondary consideration for the simple reason that if they only flew at 30 knots, they would still get to places several months before dog teams or ox carts. <laughs> this does not mean that aircraft have to be slow. If high speed makes them more economical to operate, so much the better. Eventually, of course, in anything of this sort, the question of relative cost creeps in, and quite rightly. This applies equally to bush or outback operations as it does to the movement of heavy freight over long distances. The difficulty about estimating the cost of this type of aviation is that it is very difficult to find comparable figures. In northern Canada, the cost per tonne mile by air is not much greater than by road. But that takes no account of the cost of the road in the first place or its maintenance. In Australia, the railways, as in a great uh, number of other countries, are run at a loss. Yet, quite obviously, they must go on running. The difficulty at the moment seems to be to estimate correctly exactly what type of operations are most suited to each system of transport. The conclusions, as I see it, are that the scope for aviation will be considerably broadened. First, when the full advantages and possibilities of aircraft are thoroughly appreciated and trusted by potential operators. And second, if and when suitable aircraft make their appearance. Although it is really outside the scope of this lecture, I must draw attention to the very great importance of a strong, flexible air cargo fleet in the event of war. 
After all, it's the combination of the navy and merchant navy which constitutes our maritime strength. And similarly, our power in the air depends upon the combination of the air forces and the merchant air fleets of the Commonwealth. Now, at the risk of becoming monotonous, I would like to repeat that aviation has become a vital and integral part of the civilization of the countries of the Commonwealth and Empire, and that their further development depends upon operators demanding and the aircraft industry producing machines capable of doing a wide variety of work cheaply and efficiently. And at the moment, the center and head of the aviation industry for the Commonwealth and Empire is in these islands. It is true that great strides have been made in some of the dominions in the design and production of aircraft suited to their own needs. But the industry in these islands is still the leading partner and capable of making many useful contributions for a number of years yet. If it is to do this, it must not be blinded by the chances of lucrative Ministry of Supply contracts <clears throat> or have its attention or have its attention to the requirements of the Commonwealth and Empire distracted by the clamour of Britain's airline operators. The, the Ministry of Supply, the service ministries and the civil operators are obviously the industry's best customers and patrons and they cannot be blamed for only considering their own special requirements. But if the industry is to play its proper part it must look beyond that and consider the progress of aviation as a whole all over the world. I have no intention of telling them how this can be done. All I wish to do is to draw attention to what I think has become a neglected part of aviation. What is more, it is that part of aviation which has the most important part to play in opening up the remote areas of the new world. Now, it, it rather looks as if I have placed all the burden of the future development of outback and bush aviation on the makers. That's not the impression I want to leave. It's much more important that each party concerned should understand and appreciate the demands, difficulties and limitations of the others and of, the a and of aviation in remote areas in general. I started the uh, preparation of this lecture thinking it was going to be quite a burden. But thanks to the wonderful help I've had from people all over the Commonwealth and Empire, I have learned more about aviation than I could have done in any other way. And for that reason, I owe a debt of gratitude <coughs> to the Royal Aeronautical Society for asking me to give this lecture. And I've also acquired an even greater admiration for the pilots and operators of aircraft in what I described as my third division of aviation. All over the world, they are doing their work without fuss or fanfare, without publicity or uniforms. And nearly all of it is done with makeshift equipment. We hear often enough about the need for a strong, modern and efficient air force. And I fully agree with that. We hear, not quite so often, about the need for a strong, modern and efficient mercantile air service. And at the moment that seems to be even more important. But above all, we must have an aircraft industry capable of meeting our own needs as well as the special needs of those countries whose development and future well-being depend upon aviation.
Ladies and gentlemen, uh, two world wars since the birth of heavier than air flight uh, must have inevitably directed our thoughts more to uh, aviation for war than for peace. And this lecture has demonstra demonstrated very vividly the other uses for aircraft. To some of us, some of us who are perhaps obsessed with the need for more and more speed in the supersonic range, it comes as rather a shock to realize that there is a need for an aircraft in which low speed and low operating co costs are uh, is, uh, necessary, leading perhaps to the reintroduction of the biplane. We're indebted to you, sir, for emphasizing how much aviation has become a vital and integral part of the Commonwealth. I'm sure we all regret that the development of the class of aircraft you mentioned has been so retarded. But uh, the lecture is unne un undoubtedly of value in emphasizing to us the needs of this class of aircraft. Uh, I'm sure you'll all join with me in again thanking His Royal Highness for his lecture. Society is doubly honoured this evening because I now have the pleasure of handing the diploma of honorary fellowship to Ms. Royal Highness.